it's there every day. You know, if I go for a walk somewhere and there's not many people around and then I see a man, it's the first thing I think. And then you start thinking, well, these women spoke out, uh, you know, anonymously. And I thought, well, I should do the same. So here I am. Hello, I'm Terry White, a journalist, author and survivor. This is the second episode of Why Didn't You? A podcast telling the real stories of survivors. The survivors who've all at some point been asked, why didn't you report to the police? Tell someone, go and be examined, scream, fight, wear something different, take a well-lit path home, leave him the first time he attacked you. Their stories expose the dangerous myths behind these questions, how they're used to shame and blame survivors. Firstly, I want to say thank you to those of you who took the time to listen to our launch episode last week with Ellie Wilson. We were so touched by the response. Thank you to everybody who sent us a message or left a nice comment or sent a DM. And really, we were so touched that you took the time to listen to Ellie, to her story. As I said, I'm a survivor. I've been assaulted three times. I've reported two, and I'm awaiting a charging decision on another. That's my story. We've heard Ellie's. What's yours? This week on Why Didn't You, we are joined by Amber. Now, Amber is a pseudonym. Further identifying details and the names identifying details of others have also been changed to protect Amber. And I do think this is a good moment to remind everybody that in England and Wales, victims of sexual crimes have a lifelong right to anonymity. In Scotland, it's a convention but not enshrined in law, which I know there's a lot of work being done to change, including by last week's guest, Ellie Wilson. Um, So do check that out. But please do remember that that anonymity is automatic and lifelong. We are joined by Amber. Hello, Amber. Thank you for being our second guest. Thank you, you got You got in touch after reading about the podcast can you maybe begin by telling us what prompted you to send that message um I think it's the events the recent events um where there's been lots of pylons on social media to women and women not being believed and then I read the statistics about the majority of women don't even go to court and the ones who try and go to court don't even see their attacker jailed. And I just thought there's been a few incidents in my life. And apart from, you know, a close friend, a partner, parents, nobody knows about it. And I thought it's almost like it didn't happen because no one knows. And I don't know, it's difficult. It's quite difficult to talk about. But um, I just felt that you were the right person for many, many reasons. 
to talk to about it. And also it wasn't, I didn't want to do it just to tell my story. I wanted to do it to kind of sort of give hope to other women about how you can survive it and come out the other side and how life carries on and it's okay. And as you just said, you've never talked about your experiences before, apart from, as you said, isolated people, you know. How does it feel, I suppose, to be sat here about to tell people, obviously we've changed your name for very good reason, but it's it's still an incredibly brave thing to do. Does it feel brave? Uh, no, no, it doesn't feel brave. And I've questioned myself many times since I messaged you about why I'm doing it. And I don't really have a definitive answer. It just felt the right time and you felt the right person. And if it helps one other person, then it's worth doing it. I feel really nervous, not brave. Well, don't be nervous um, because what this podcast hopefully is, and I'm, I'm with you on all that kind of public uh, terrible behaviour basically we've seen previously is we want to be the place where women can have those conversations in a safe and rational and empathetic way. Um, so let's start at the beginning because you you're in your 50s now but tell me a little bit about your childhood and growing up it was a it was a happy time wasn't it very happy um you know good relationship with siblings brilliant relationship with parents parents still together secure loving home completely normal i know that that your first experience with sexual violence was kind of quite shocking and not necessarily difficult within that context but it 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 really disrupted what had been a happy childhood for you and and we won't be specific about the actual age that this occurred but you were a, a child tell us about that first experience i feel like listeners should you know, have some kind of warning about this because it's 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 as pretty bad. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, yes, I was a child. I wasn't even a teenager, and I was hospitalised for some serious surgery, historical surgery that stemmed from the manner of my birth. And as part of this surgery, I was covered in plaster from head to toe, pretty much. I mean, not my actual head or arms, but from my chest down to my toes. So I was about as vulnerable as you can get. And I was in a hospital bed without going into great details. On more than one occasion, a male hospital porter, whenever my curtains were closed because I was using a bedpan, took advantage of me. Another thing we should say is is how people discuss what what they've experienced, the detail they want to share is is something else that that I feel really strongly should be down to whoever is sharing their story. But it was a sexual assault. And were you, I mean, granted the the, you know, quite idyllic way you grew up, you must have been incredibly shocked. As you said, you were incredibly vulnerable and powerless. Did you have a sense immediately of this isn't 
it's what is happening this isn't right yeah the the first occasion he came at my face and tried to kiss me i mean it's not i don't i don't think you can even call it kissing because kissing is like a loving thing isn't it but basically that's what he tried to do and he smelt strongly of alcohol and i was revulsed and knew it was wrong <laughs> and pushed him away and then the second occasion he targeted another more intimate area and um again i pushed him off and I look back and I think, why didn't I scream? I mean, I was on a shared ward. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I was a child. I didn't know what was going on. It took me by surprise. Um, and I think I've blurred a lot of it out. But at some point, I did tell my parents because I was very fortunate that I've got parents I'm very close to. And I told them and they took action immediately. And I've talked to them about it in subsequent years. And they said that the hospital investigated, decided that he was guilty. Um, there was other incidents that had been reporters suspected, you know, this it wasn't it wasn't about me, <laughs> obviously, never is. Um and he was sacked, but no prosecution, no police were involved. And that was my mostly my father's decision apparently, because he even back then, and this was a long, long time ago, had the feeling that it would be too much for me to have to go through. He he told me when I was, you know, much, much older and able to talk to him about it, that he didn't want his little girl, which I was, having to be examined again by strange men, which is what would have happened back then. It probably would have been policemen. And he didn't want me to have to be questioned. He just wanted the whole thing to go away and he was satisfied the guy was sacked. And I don't have any judgment about that. Obviously, now as an adult, I think, you know, he could have then gone on to another hospital and done the same and he should have been prosecuted. But also, what impact would that have had on me if I'd had to go to court and go through? I don't even know what I'd have had to go to through. I've never prosecuted anyone for it. I think it's kind of almost like you're... you're dad could see even then what we all talk about now I mean you know I've read articles with barristers and with doctors and with you know parents who have relevant professional experience saying they don't know if they'd advise their own daughters to prosecute given what they go through and it's it's kind of one of the frankly amazing things about the lack of progress on sexual violence is the fact that that conversation your dad must have had with himself and your mum at the time about what it would cost you, that that exact same conversation is still happening now, decades and decades on. It's really bad, isn't it? <laughs> Here we are. Nothing's really changed. Although I hope it has. I hope my understanding is that, you know, more female police officers are involved. I think that was one of my dad's main concerns from memory. It's, it's even now quite a long time ago since I last had the conversation with him because he's now elderly and I don't like to bring these things up. But um, yeah, I think from memory, his worry was that I would then get examined by a male police officer. He was worried about that. Historically, institutions haven't uh, behaved well in these scenarios, but the fact that obviously the hospital for them, there is a preference, you'd imagine, around moving him out of the hospital rather than in any way making this an official 
complaint that presumably, you know, they would then be involved in as it went through the system? I don't know. It's difficult because although what happened was obviously traumatic, I genuinely don't feel like it's affected me the rest of my life. You know, it's just a horrible incident or incidents that happened at the time. And most of the time I don't think about it. But I wonder if my body knows it's still there because the minute I saw your post, I messaged you almost immediately. So it must be there without me. Sorry. No. I'm sorry. Are you okay to go on? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's important. It's important. Yeah. Anytime you need a break. I think I think the thing is to not have judgment on anyone other mm. than the perpetrator. Don't, don't judge the victims. Don't judge their family, their friends. Just don't judge anyone other than the person who committed the crime, I think, is my takeaway from this. And I, I imagine when you were there as a child and the, the priority for you was just it stopping, right? That's why you told mm-hmm. your mum and dad and... and and you were close to your mum and dad. And I think, you know, this podcast is is largely about dealing with those myths and those assumptions around sexual violence. And there's a whole thing about the kind of girl, the kind of woman who is assaulted. So, you know, we were talking about this um, when we spoke yesterday where I said, Somebody like me who comes from a council estate, very poor background, single mum, no money around, no stability. It's kind of, you know, it was really not a big shock. And you could see people kind of thinking, oh, well, just another one when somebody like me is abused. But you were a, from everything you've told me, you were a confident, happy, secure girl in a loving family who was likely to tell her parents so yeah. it was it do you think looking back now was it purely the kind of opportunity that presented itself when you were so physically vulnerable I think it's more basic than that I think he was a pedophile <laughs> and I think he targeted children and for all I know he targeted every child on the ward and I was the only one that spoke up I you know I I I don't know I mean you know uh, at the time I was having a very, very good education. My parents are very intellectual. We always talked about everything. I was very confident. He really picked the wrong victim, actually, because I spoke, whereas I know lots of victims don't. Lots of children don't. Why would they? It's one thing that I actually find really heartwarming isn't the right word, but something positive about your story is that within the closeness of a family that you felt, the immediate response was to tell your parents and have them intervene. And a lot of abuse, as we know, goes on for so long because of the fear of of speaking up. And I feel so kind of relieved in a way for for young Amber, even though obviously something really terrible happened, but you had that security to support you. And, And as you said, you know, it didn't impact the rest of your life, but can you remember when you were becoming older and... You know, you were things were kind of either developing with boys from them being just that irritating, you know, irritating lad on the playground to people you might be interested in dating. As your relationship with, I suppose, the opposite sex, your own body changed and you became a woman, 
do you, did it ever kind of play into that or was it not something that really you thought about a great deal? I think it massively played into it, but I wasn't aware at the time. A lot of these things come to you with maturity and age. Um, the first time a boy tried to kiss me, I was it was about a year after this incident and I was back to full health and back at school and I went to a school disco and a boy tried to kiss me. And I remember having a bit of a flashback and I was completely revulsed. And that was it. I didn't kiss anyone. And then I left school at 16, still a virgin, which was not necessarily the case for all my classmates. Possibly a slow developer, although I don't think 16 is necessarily, you know, just because that's the legal age. But yeah, it was a good two or three years after that before I had my first full relationship. So I was like 18, 19, which in my peer group was old. And the, the person I chose was lovely, sweet, my own age, safe. And yeah, I've always been weird about kissing. And I hadn't put the two together. It was about 10 years ago I started really thinking about that, which was a long time after the event. And I thought, oh God, that's why I don't really like kissing. So yeah, I can thank him for that. <sighs> um, and then I would say, I mean, I don't, I don't really like the word promiscuous because it suggests there's something wrong with sleeping with who you want. But for the purpose of this, at least listeners will know what I'm talking about. But I would say in my 20s and 30s, I was um, very much in control of what I did and who I did it with. And I had lots of pleasure with numerous people. But having read further on the subject, that's also something that can happen to young people who are sexually abused, that they then can, you know, seek out multiple partners and it's to do with taking your power back or something. But I mean, I don't know. These are all psychological theories that I don't necessarily, I don't know. I, I like to think it was just because I was still that same confident person who had had a very lovely, thank goodness, upbringing and just, you know, was exercising my right to be who I wanted when I wanted, you know. And and it can be, right? And I think, I think while recognising the impact that these things have, we also don't have to, again, these these feel like myths to me, which is somebody once said to me, it was on a work project and I was writing about a girl who'd been abused and when she was a woman and they said, oh, well, if she was abused as a kid, she'll be sleeping with loads of people now because they'd, I mean, I was like, you've read all the wrong books and seen all the wrong films. And I know that's how it played out with some people, but I also think that, you know, we were probably of an age where sex in the city, Samantha, her ownership of sex and sex being for pleasure primarily was seen as a positive thing. It wasn't seen as a reaction to something. So I think I think it's whatever is actually right for you in the situation. And it doesn't always have to come back to that thing, you know, that's that shame in some way is always driving your decisions. Yeah, I didn't have any shame around it at all. I, I you know, I worked in a industry where that was all fine and all my friends and you know we were just independent young women doing what we wanted safely with whoever we wanted I didn't yeah I, I don't know whether it's related or not and then when you were a young woman there were two incidences I know within a few years of each other um which we're not going to go into tons of detail about but I think it's important to talk about this sense of of sexual assault happening more than once in a 
a woman's life, which doesn't seem to be this rare as hen's teeth thing that some people think it is. You know, if we touch wood, get to live a long life, it can happen many times. And there's multiple women I know for whom that's the case. Those um, two that happened as you were a young woman, can you possibly kind of describe the impact at that time? Because, you know, you had been a child, but here you are, you know, just becoming an adult, the person you're you're meant to be. And and these two significant things happened to you. Yeah. The first one just took me completely by surprise because I was in a work environment but there was just me and the perpetrator in the room and it'd been a normal working kind of environment for two or three hours. And then the person just lunged at me and didn't say no. And I had to make my escape and clothes were ripped and it was pretty horrific actually, but they didn't really get anywhere, which was good. So that was a shock. I was, you know, late teens when that happened. So that was, yeah, it just took me by surprise. I didn't, I didn't do anything about it, which. I, I do regret that now. I do regret that now. But but I had my reasons and it was because I'd fought so hard to get the job in the work environment I was in. I didn't want to jeopardise that. That was my logic at the time. I 100% would not have that logic now, but, you know, I was late teens. So what can I say? I thought I'd lose the job. So And then the other incident, completely different, completely different was one of those incidents that I think is confusing for lots of women even now, even though we know legally it's not confusing, in that I was in a situation with a male friend where we shared a bed and we were purely friends. And then in the middle of the night, I woke up and he was having sex with me. (laughs) And, um, yeah, and I remember, you know, sort of objecting, vaguely objecting, and then sort of going back to sleep, you know, alcohol had been involved. It was one of those situations, actually, that I think courts and juries just don't know what to do with even now, because it's a male, it's a female, there's alcohol, you're in a bed, there may or may not be clothes on. Where's the consent? Who can prove you didn't say yes? Was he actually in the wrong? Was he just drunk and decided, you know, it? it it's it it might seem black and white to some people. It's murky, isn't it? Clearly, legally, and I am telling the truth. So my testimony, clearly, it's rape. <laughs> but but I can't honestly say that it felt like it at the time. It felt confusing. Again, confusing. In fact, all three incidents were completely baffling and confusing because nobody expects someone to attack them, do they? Particularly when it's always by surprise. They don't ever warn you, do they? <laughs> You know, I think the beliefs and the myths that we're surrounded by, that we're talking about a lot, they kind of sink into our skin as well as men. So, you know, the thought that that one wasn't as bad because you knew him or actually because you'd got drunk, you were partially responsible or because they, the other one you'd fought him off and he hadn't managed to do anything in the first. And, and you, do you... Did you almost have a sense of kind of grading them in your own mind and and making excuses for them almost? Yeah, I definitely do. Particularly the third one. Uh, and and I know this is wrong, but I still can't help but think he was a young drunkard man and you know, I know I should know better, but yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I'm just being honest with you, there's no point 
pretending that I'm some pioneering feminist here who now hates him and thinks that what everything he did was wrong because that's sort of not how I actually feel. I still feel confused by it. But also a lot of alcohol was intaken and it was a long time ago. So, you know, but the first two, I think, are quite clear, you know, you know, uh, the first two were very clearly attacks on me that were deliberate. Do you wonder if, do you ever wonder if that third man, how he'd characterise it looking back now? Because it's something I often think about when I've I've been in not a dissimilar situation and I wondered as I made excuses and as I walked away, did he and do you think with whether it's the current climate or the fact that there are hopefully different narratives emerging where women are kind of centred more, do you think he would even consider what he'd done wrong? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't speak for him because, you know, we didn't mention it. I just left and, yeah, I, I don't know. Although we weren't really very friendly again after that, so perhaps that says that he knew he was in the wrong. Perhaps he too is a middle-aged man now with regrets and thinks about, you know, that time he jumped on that woman and shouldn't have done. I don't know. And how did you, you know, when it happened a second time and then a third, and as you say, they're all completely different, did you ever blame yourself? Because I I wrote about this in my memoir when I was abused for the second time as a child. I very, very specifically remember thinking, what is it I'm putting out into the world that, you know, now I know lots about how predators target, especially um, predators target girls when we're talking about abuse within the within the home. But I'd swallowed something that made me go, what, what is it I'm putting out? I'm the one attracting these men to do this to me. And I feel really, really like heartbroken for that girl who thought that. Did you ever, as it happened again and then once more, did you did you go through that same process or were you, I know you say you were confused and, and unsure about different ones, but did you ever have a moment of, of self-blame? Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, not for the first one. I don't know, because I was, you know, under 18. I, I, I feel completely blameless. <laughs> um, but. I, I do, I think not so much now, but probably up until my 30s, 20s, 30s, I think I probably just thought, I'm too friendly, I'm too chatty, you know, just these type of men are drawn to women like me, you know. I was always told that I was very attractive and very charming. People have told me that my entire life. Almost like a kind of bad thing that you're considered an attractive, charming woman. I fit the traditional mould of what's considered good looking, or I certainly did when I was younger, without having without going into details about what I looked like, obviously. But um, yeah, 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 I was traditionally considered attractive. And I think I blamed myself for that. But Terry, I didn't tone myself down because of it. I just thought maybe I'm too friendly. It's mad, isn't it? It's mad. Because <laughs> you have to live with these things, right? And I, th- I think it's the thought of... of- Seeing them all as they really are and having to live with that as and what's been done to you is really hard, really hard. And I think part of our survival, certainly part of mine at times, has been 
well, I'll just chop that one off. That doesn't count. That's one less thing to feel fucking dreadful about. Obviously, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, And I know that there was, and we're not going to talk about this in in detail for a very specific reason, which is, um, which we won't discuss here, but it's to protect both your privacy and kind of future options when it comes to any any legal action, which isn't to say that there's any legal action being taken. And I think people who are listening should know this, which is just that even when nobody's identified, et cetera, et cetera, um, there can be an argument that if you've previously disclosed something before you've reported it to the police, in the media, for example, it can be used against you. Now, this is a real, I've actually had personal experience of this. So um, me and Amber discussed this before we did the podcast. And if anybody needs advice on how it will impact them from a legal perspective and what exactly it can be used against you for, please get some independent advice. Call Rape Crisis. I'm going to have a look for a few other really specific support organisations that can help you because I do not want anybody's options being eroded any more than they already have been so the but the only thing to say about this one is that it happened when you were older and I know that it was shocking because of that because as you say even though you know it's not about age or attractiveness or anything like that it's it's did you almost feel like you that was it you were done with Mm. that bit of living as a woman yeah, yeah. I, th- I think you do. If you're perceived as an attractive woman and you get constant attention, which I did from men in the street, everywhere I went, my teens, my 20s and my 30s, you expect by your 40s that that's all stopped. And also you don't walk around thinking, when am I next going to get attacked? Well, I don't. Yeah. And then it happened again. And that's Publicly. the, you know, <laughs> but, and that's, but, but we, you know, as much as we know logically isn't about sex, it, it's about power. I mean, I remember that UKIP candidate, Carl Benjamin, who's now, I think, a right wing YouTuber, obviously, you know, he said, oh, I wouldn't even rape Jess Phillips, the MP, or, you know, the, the suggestion being she wasn't hot enough or somehow good enough as a woman to be, to be raped. And that that really reminded me how it was really about power, and and you um, have always been a, a very successful woman. That's in and of itself a reason for a man to do that, regardless of your age. And and hopefully one of the things we can dispel is that rape only happens to a certain type of woman, a certain age of woman. You know, th- this is every woman it just simply is because it is about power not sex but so how did that that one later did that change your frame of thinking I know that I I know that it could happen to me I'm 44 that it could happen to me again and not what form it could take or anything like that. But as as you say, I don't live my life terrified, but it is, it's a shadow at the back of my mind where I think, 
that could happen and I'm not sure how I deal with it again. Did it insert that almost into your brain or have you made a determined effort to completely not allow that to happen? No, it, it's um, it's it's there every day. You know, if I go for a walk somewhere and there's not many people around and then I see a man, it's the first thing I think. But I think that's the same for most women, <laughs> even women who have never been attacked. You just grow up knowing to be on your guard. And obviously it's not all men. We know that. But you don't know which ones it will be. That's the problem. That's the problem. Because in all four of my incidents, you would never expect it would be any of them. A hospital porter, a work colleague, a friend. Can't talk about the fourth one. But trust me, you wouldn't expect it to be that person either. You just are on your guard. I don't, I don't, I don't know whether I'm more on my guard than other women because I don't know how on their guard they are. But I'm pretty sure that if most women were walking in a wood and it was starting to get a bit dark and there was a man behind them, it would cross their mind that they could be in danger. I'd be surprised if it didn't cross their mind. And and how do you feel about the ones that, that you know, well, none of them have been reported. How have you felt about that? over the years have you had moments where you considered it have you just what has been your kind of path when it comes to reporting or not reporting because this is the big question right this is the one that women get challenged with most it's quite simple it's a crime why didn't you just report it there is one major why didn't you it's this one can you talk about how it shifted you know throughout your 20s, 30s, 40s, and, and how you grapple with that question today? Well, the first incident, the decision was made by my parents and I was a child and I've just stuck with that decision and I'm just going to leave that one there. And I just hope he's dead now. And the chances are he probably is because of the age I think he might have been at the time and the age I am now. I have considered it for the second and third but I've never wanted to put myself through that. And there have been times where I've felt ashamed of that decision because then that leaves them free to do it to other people. But the fourth one that we're not going into, multiple, multiple times I have been close to going to a police station. Multiple times. Um, and what else is it that's stopping you, do you think? Is there one, I mean, we have a sense of, reporting takes a lot and that then going through the the whole process and the legal system is is very challenging we heard from ellie last week about you know she had a successful outcome in the end in in terms of he's actually in prison but she went through a huge amount to get there what is there any specific bit of it that kind of you know makes you freeze up and think i can't do this I, I think it would be impossible with the first three because it's such a long time ago. It's so historical. There is, well, I mean, there there is proof with the first one, I guess, if the hospital records still exist. But there really isn't any proof with the second or third. It's my word, their word, you know. Um, fourth one is completely different. That's, you know. Um, 
But that one I would be worried about the impact on my friends and family and my life. And like you alluded to earlier, I'm successful at what I do. And even though it it was unacceptable, you see, we're back to what you said before about levels, aren't we? It 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 wasn't as distressing as the others, but it was still unacceptable behaviour that I feel must be repeated to other women if it was done to me. But I, oh, it's difficult, isn't it? I've gone round and round in my head about this. I just don't want the attention it would bring. I just don't. And I feel a bit ashamed about that. If I'm honest, I feel ashamed about that because I should do that to stop this person doing it to other women. And if I was sure it would, but again, we're back to the justice system, aren't we? And I'm not sure it would. Well, so, you know, statistically, you would have to have, if, you, if you're a driver, I mean, there's a whole conversation about about making women responsible for stopping future behaviour of a predator. But the other thing is you would, if that was your reason, you would have to be confident of conviction, which, you know, yes, of course, everybody should have a fair trial. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that when the... Um, charging and conviction rates are so woefully low. In in ninety nine out of a hundred cases, that person would not be found guilty, um, and that presumably is the thing that sits with you. What would have to change, or what could change for you to feel able to report? Would it be um, seeing more successful prosecutions? Would it be different levels of protection, uh, you know, whether it's online or is there anything you can point to that would actually make you feel more secure in reporting? Yeah, if the high, if the levels of conviction were higher, if I was definitely guaranteed anonymity, and also I think that there would have to be other women who came forward as well so we could do it all together. So if there was enough of those people, which I know sounds cowardly, but, you know, safety in numbers. No, and and maybe actually you could help explain if there's somebody listening to this, you know, say he's a a bloke or a woman who, who doesn't really get why women wait for other women to come forward or, you know, why, for example, Me Too had so much power, why the first women of Weinstein enabled a much bigger wave. Could you tell them, those people listening, what it is that enables you to feel so much more secure and so much stronger when there isn't just you? It's because we're not believed. You know, even the people who are listening to this, which, you know, I'm hoping are the kind of women who have a reason for listening, but you can guarantee there'll be somebody listening or somebody over a shoulder listening to someone who's listening who won't believe a word I'm saying. And it's just women are not believed. They're just not. They're not believed about anything. (laughs) Well, not in this society. If there were other women who had the same experience with this person, then for whatever reason, people are more likely to believe you. It's mad, isn't it? Like, why not believe one person? Why would you only believe a few? If you haven't been through it, if you haven't reported this kind of crime and gone through the entire process, I think it's hard to communicate how isolating and, and you know, all the stuff your dad was worried about too, how exposing it feels, how vulnerable 
it makes you, I mean, you know, this is the first time you've talked about about this at length ever before. And that in and of itself is painful, never mind redoing it over and over again. Has, you know, you have been thinking about these things over the last few days. Prior to that, do you think you saw them more as isolated incidents almost? Have you, is there more of a narrative forming for you about what joins these assaults and and maybe the impact they've had for you, whether consciously or or subconsciously? I, I think the trigger, I hate that word, but, you know, everyone knows what it means. I think the trigger was the... Russell Brand allegations, which is obviously the trigger for you doing the podcast as well. I think that's what got me thinking more about it. I think because I've had, you know, quite a long life now already, you know, reasonably long life, I think they were just things that I had not ticked off, but just things that had happened in my life. Just like you think, oh, when I was 21, I went to Greece. I, I didn't go to Greece at 21. I'm just sort of, you know, things in your life, like, you know, oh, I dated a guy called Steve when I was 28, you know, oh, I was attacked when I was 16. And I don't mean that to sound frivolous, but when lots of things happen to you and the older you get, the more does happen to you, both amazing and brilliant. And you've got amazing stories and also really bad and horrible. You do lose friends and family to cancer. You do get ill and have things happen. You do have pets die, you know, good and bad things happen. You do have an amazing job. And then you have times where you have no money. Well, most of us, I think, have all these different things in different ways. And I think when you've been attacked, which I can't believe I'm saying this, when I, I never thought about it like this, but when you've been attacked by four different men and four different times of your life, it just becomes part of the tapestry of your life. You know, one of the other famous uh, myths is if you're anonymous, it's because you're not telling the truth. And, and women, I can't quite get the argument straight about why women would choose to lie about this. Sometimes they say money, even if nobody's being paid, which, by the way, Amber isn't. Uh, or it's attention, which, as we know, is usually awful attention. Can you maybe speak a little bit about why, you know, th- there's obviously legal reasons we're um, not identifying you and not identifying the people involved, but also it's about, well, mainly it's about protection. Maybe you can help dis spell that myth about anonymity equals falsehoods and that, you know, for it to be taken seriously, you have to be fully named and exposed, which is a bizarre, just outrageous demand to make of people. I mean, it sounds anathema saying it's because I want to have a private life when here I am talking on a podcast, which lots of people will listen to. But by being anonymous and by not giving any details, I've still got my right to a private life. So the only person who knows who I am is you. And so it's private. I have chosen over the last few decades to keep this private. And by staying anonymous, I'm continuing to keep it private. And I think you just have to respect if people want to do that. And why would somebody wanting to keep something private mean they're lying? So lots of people keep things like when a marriage breaks down, for example, some people write about it all over their Facebook page and slag off their ex and everyone knows everything. And other people get divorced quietly and you don't even know until you meet them for a coffee. And that's it. There's nothing more, nothing less. Just some of us 
want to keep these things private and some people like to shout about it. And there may come a day where I have less responsibilities in my life, where there's less people who will be impacted, where I may well be that person that goes, this happened to me and you know I might then go and help other women and I might be happy not being anonymous. But at the stage of life I'm at at the moment, I don't want to put those close to me through that because that's not fair to them. Do you feel like you've come to terms? I mean, it's such a bland statement, but do you feel like you've come to terms with what's happened to you over those decades? I think I have because I don't feel like any of it is my fault. You know, I think that goes back to the secure, loving family, being a confident person. I am not going to take responsibility for their actions. They chose those actions. And so I would say that the majority of the time, I, I think it's a bit like people who are very grief stricken. It's horrific to start with. And then time does heal. That is partly true. But people let that grief walk alongside them and it becomes part of them. And I think it's the same when you are a survivor of sexual abuse, which I'd never thought of myself as that before until I spoke to you yesterday, which is mad in itself. But I am. I'm a survivor of sexual abuse four times over. It's not really a label that I put on myself normally. It's just something that walks alongside me, along with all the other good and bad that's happened in my longish life. And is there the, the sense that you don't want that and that alone to you? define you sometimes when there's things in the news I'll be approached about writing about abuse and and it's actually why I wanted to do this rather than that because I don't know how much me giving an opinion on something really matters as opposed to letting other people tell their stories and also I don't want to be defined as just that that's that's something that happened to me that was a fucking awful but I've, I've fought my whole life not to be, you know, drowned by it, not to be sucked under the waves by it. And sometimes I fear being public means that's how people view you. Is there a sense of also being the person to shape how people see you? But also it's not, it's for, it's something that happened to you four times. It's not the totality of who you are. Yeah, I, I, I could not do what you have done and I completely respect what you have done. I am not that person. I'm not brave enough. You know, you've put yourself out there and you've done so much good work as a result of putting yourself out there. But I'm not you, you know, and there's nothing wrong with your way and there's nothing wrong with my way. And I suppose in a way, talking to you today is my way of sort of assuaging any guilt I might have about not actually doing anything about it maybe i'm honest please don't have guilt please like there is i know you know as much as anybody does about what it takes to report and what it does and i know exactly where you are i've had the exact same guilt but you know part of part of the problem with the systemic issues around sexual violence is we're the ones getting asked, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you why didn't you stay sober before you went home with that lad you knew, you know, or why didn't you do why? And 
because of you not reporting, he could do it again. That those conversations need to be focused back on, as you say, the perpetrator, right? Well, why did he think he could have sex with you in the middle of the night without your consent when you hadn't consented prior? And why why has this perpetrator kept this behavior going? Why has he never been caught? Like there's lots and lots of questions that are asked before it's, why didn't you report? Because you need to save future girls. You need to save future women. Um, so, and it's it's the way it's structured, right? Is Is blame it on the girls, blame it on the women, because then we're so busy torturing ourselves that we're not pointing the finger where it should be. It's just complicated, isn't it? You know, it's it's and also when you when you have been abused, I don't know, there's a feeling that well, from my point of view, there's a feeling that if I reported any of them, I'd get abused all over again, but in a different way. I'd get abused by the system and not being believed and I just don't need that in my life, you know? Your husband obviously knows and you've told him. Do you think it's changed in terms of, I remember telling my first couple of boyfriends and and them not responding particularly well. And I think the good men of the world, of which I know many and I know you know many, um, really do have an understanding of what we have been through and, and, and how that's impacted us. Does his support and belief make a difference for you? Um, no, not really. I know that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, he 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 is amazing and he is supportive. And I did tell him, not early on, but fairly early on. And he did respond appropriately and he was quite shocked, actually. Um which I don't think any women would be shocked if I sat down and told them. So that's interesting in itself that he was shocked and he's a man of the world. Um, but to be honest, his view of it doesn't make any difference to my view of it or my view of how I feel or anything. It's all mine, really. I've lived with all of this for so much longer than I've known him that that actually nobody else's opinion really affects what goes on in my brain, I'm sad to say. That is an answer I fully, fully respect. And I suppose just just finally, what what do you most hope to see change? And it, it can, do you know what? It can feel depressing because we're sat here having a conversation that, as I said earlier, your mum and dad likely had that, you know, we've been living with this reality of, of what it costs victims to be able to report in the first place, then try and get a prosecution, then try and get a conviction. You know, it's an incredibly difficult, long process. But I also want to try and find the green shoots from women who've been there saying, look, these things would start to make a difference, would start to make me feel different about reporting or or would enable me to say to a, a girl I knew yep it's I would advise you to do that is there anything in particular that you think 
would start to settle down the right path. I'm hopeful that younger generations do not have those deep set views that people of my generation, your generation, the one before had, which were just ingrained, that were passed on from great grandparents to grandparents to parents to, you know, um, which I am sure you grew up with and I grew up with that if a girl sleeps around, she's a slag. If she doesn't, she's tight, like you just can't win. That the men are the ones that have to be in charge, all those things that are just nonsense. Um, and it's always women who aren't believed, whereas men are believed. They're all kind of part of society, really. It's not even it's not even up to the police or judges, really. It's up to all of us as humans in this society to break down those myths for the next generations to come. And, you know, I do know some young people and I'm hopeful, you know, I do see young people around me and and I see how they're being taught in schools. And consent, like even that word wasn't used when I was growing up. Nobody used the word consent. I'd never heard of it probably till about five years ago, not in the context of sex. And they're taught that in schools now. They're taught it in primary school. You know, I'm not saying that every man and every woman is suddenly going to go out there and be respectful, but I'm, I've got some hope for the future that at least these subjects are being talked about openly and they're being taught in schools. And that's got to be better than the way it was when I was growing up. It's got to be. Yeah, I think getting in there when the kids are young is everything because where that, you know, where that sexism becomes ingrained and and real binary ways of seeing each other and 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 all of those uh, difficult beliefs around consent and girls and as all of that sets in, I think it just becomes more difficult as as people get older. And I think it's it one of the things now is us realizing that early intervention is absolutely key. And is there any other, I suppose, anything else you want to say about your experience or to anyone listening who's really resonated with what you've said today? I mean, it's very hard to do, but try not to let it define you. Because if you think of yourself as the victim, which obviously we are victims in in one sense, but if you walk around thinking of yourself as the victim, then they kind of win. So you've just got to put it down to, like, I must have met thousands and thousands of men in my entire life and four of them behaved very badly. So let's have some perspective here. That's what I try and do. And I think that's a good thing to do. And the problem is that we've all got different personalities and one bad incident can affect one woman for the rest of her life. Whereas other women like me, whatever reason, very luckily, I can have four bad incidents and I'm kind of okay. I mean, not that okay, but okay enough. You know what I mean? So I think don't let it define you. Anything bad that happens to you, you know, if you're burgled, if someone runs over your cat, you know, whatever, whatever horrible thing that's happening, um, don't let that be the thing that defines you to you. I don't mean to other people. I mean to you internally, you know, keep keep being you and keep being strong and keep stepping forward. And, you know, if you want to prosecute, prosecute. If you don't, then don't and don't feel bad. It's all about you, really. We're not here that long and then we're dead, aren't we? And ultimately, I know it's awful this, but no one really cares about us as much as we care about ourselves. (laughs) So you've got to care about yourself. 
<laughs> you know what strikes me though about about your story particularly is it shows the impact of a really happy stable family where you feel safe and where the other thing is a complete anomaly and you know that you can trust that unit and I think there is something to be said for coming from that place of love having a childhood that was was lovely in so many ways but just having this relationship with your parents that enabled you at that age from that first incident to know it was wrong to call it out and to get it stopped and I think that's a really not a lovely thing about your story but I think it shows the power of love and the power of family and the power of a positive kind of childhood and upbringing and 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 seen at home I think you're absolutely right you know I've always had that love I've always had that support nothing else bad happened to me in my first 18 years nothing like nothing my parents are amazing amazing people you know they're they're liberal in outlook they're intellectual they're smart they talk about anything and everything everything was always discussed everything was on the table and that enabled me to immediately go and tell them and they believed you straight away right they believed you immediately totally yeah i didn't even question that they wouldn't that's a good point you know what i don't think i've ever thought about that because to me of course they believed me yeah they did yeah. they did believe me and they took action the strength that gave you as a girl and all these all these messages we feed girls at a young age you know i wasn't always believed and it was always a sense of was I making things up and was I being naughty or this this weird adult world that I didn't know how to negotiate because I was a child? And there's something in the power of that belief from your mum and dad where they said, we believe you and our priority is going to be stopping it immediately. And they came and they did that. And you think that's what all parents would do. But as girls are questioned from a very young age about the veracity of what we say, and I personally think that first belief in you, that's what, because you were a confident child and you were a happy child, that enabled you to always feel, even if you were scared of reporting because you knew the wider system is awful, you knew fundamentally you were believed by people and the people you love most. Yeah, that's true. I'd never thought of it in that way, but you're right. Yeah. And I think I would also be shocked now if somebody didn't believe me, even though I know people don't believe women because I'm used to being believed. I just want to thank you for for telling us the story you've told us today because as we spoke about, I know this isn't something you've really spoken about at length. I know kind of the way we've discussed it as part of a wider culture and, and start to look at a through line between those incidents. And and I know it, it takes a lot mo- mentally and emotionally, but it's really valuable. Um, so I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you for letting me be heard. I mean, I, I literally don't know. There's probably five people in the whole world know about this so yeah I don't know I don't know why I'm doing it now but anyway I just hope that the people who listen to this aren't just 
the people who already are aligned with our views. Do you know what I mean? How we how how are you going to get this out to people who need to listen to it? That's the difficulty, isn't it? Because we we can all be in our echo chambers, can't we? You know what I'm saying? It's tricky, isn't it? I do. I do. And you know, there are there I I think I said to somebody the other day, I want men to listen to this as much as women and women who um maybe have some quite challenging views around sexual violence you know a lot of the conversation we've heard recently was not just from men it was from women a lot of whom will have statistically been victimized themselves so i think it's a uh, it's it's really genuinely trying to frame it as a conversation other than if you try and come for me about false accusations on social media because what what we can't do at the same time is open a void and fill it with shouting voices when it's, you know, if you are just a misogynist who who wants a fight, that's not what this is. I do not have the time or patience for that. But also that's not what this is meant to be. And I do think there's a lot of false information out there or assumptions that have kind of filtered through to wider groups. I don't think everybody who kind of buys into um, or believes in any way some of those myths is a bad or evil person. For me, it's like where, how far can honesty and truth and facts and statistics, but also humanity get us like, like this woman, this woman who's talking to you is a real human woman. You know, we're talking about another parent at your kid's school. We're talking about the barmaid at your local. We're talking about one of your parents, possibly. We're talking about, do you know what I mean? Like this is, the 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 prevalence is such that there are women in your life who have experienced this too. And that each story is entirely different, but entirely valid and that only by listening to the people it's happened to and who've had to weigh up whether to prosecute, have had to weigh up whether to go to hospital and have an examination, have had to weigh up who to tell and, and to understand why and, and understand the impact of it and how seeing so few men prosecuted actually then appears to women who are considering reporting themselves. We have to start to confront the trickier parts in a hopefully proactive and positive but realistic way because I otherwise I just don't know how we're going to get anywhere fast and this is not going to be an overnight thing and there's lots of incredible individuals and groups doing great work already um, but it's it's just trying to, you know, treat each other like human beings and remind people of the real stories. These aren't, you know, sensationalised. This is not a really rare exception. We are telling the story of a woman, one in four, right, one in four, and that's only who report. I'm sure it's much higher. I'm sure it, well, it has to be just amongst people I know and myself and you and, you know, I mean, it's, it's got to be, it's got to be much higher. I do think it starts with teaching young people though, because I think, you know, the, the 45 year old man on Twitter who's misogynist is a waste of time. I mean, if they're that age and they're misogynist and they're arguing with you, they're, there's just, that's just a waste of time. But, you know, if you've got the 12 year old boy in the classroom, who's a bit confused about life and he's taught about consent and respect, then that, that's hopeful, isn't it? Then there is work that can be done. 
and I think I think there is, and it. But I, I know it takes the likes of you to be willing to tell us about what's happened to you for the first time. Often, you know, articulating things that you've never spoken about, being asked questions you've never considered, and I know it's no small thing to do. So it, it's an entirely genuine, heartfelt thank you. And if you would also like to share your story like Amber or like Ellie from last week, um, you can email why didn't you know apostrophe pod at gmail.com and the address is also in the Instagram bio. If you couldn't work it out from my garbled little message then. So all that remains to say thank you, Amber, for telling us your story. Thank you, Terry. And thank you for making me think about things that I hadn't thought about, both good and bad. And thank you for listening and for, as I just said, really listening. I know that's two episodes, two completely different and profoundly moving and important episodes. And it wouldn't be happening if you weren't willing to listen to the stories the real stories of these survivors thank you to amber for talking to me this week and for telling us her story every week alongside these testimonies i'll share a few salient statistics and facts Look, we know how rife disinformation is, so the idea is that they're relevant to what you've just heard. They'll arm, they'll inform, so please use them. It's estimated that one in six children have been sexually abused. Sexual offences against children breached the 100,000 a year mark for the first time ever in 2021 to 2022. The majority of adults who experienced sexual abuse as a child did not tell anyone at the time. Five in six women who are raped don't report. One in two adult survivors of rape have experienced it more than once. Less than two in a hundred rapes recorded by the police in 2022 ended that year in a charge or a conviction. And I do want to mention one last thing from today's chat in particular. It's about speaking publicly and disclosing publicly, including on social media. Now, obviously, there can be legal issues. And let me be clear that many use the threat of this to keep women silent. But there also can be issues to consider if you do want to keep your options open when it comes to taking action in the future. It may be used to argue that it could impact a fair trial or allow questions to be asked about why you didn't report but spoke elsewhere, even if you don't identify the assailant. So I've experienced this. I wrote a memoir which included details of my abuse as a child. I didn't identify my attacker, but... It has since become a consideration during the process of charging. Now, I don't think it would have changed my decision, but I would 
have liked probably to know that that could have been an issue in future. So me and Amber discussed it this week. It will always be discussed by anyone who comes on this podcast and myself but I also urge you to please gain independent advice whether it's talking to me whether it's talking about it on social um, just so you know exactly I suppose the full context and, and, and possible consequences that could appear down the line just so you're informed so victim support are on 0808 1689 111 or victimsupport.org.uk You can also get support and help from Rape Crisis in England and Wales 0808 500 22 Rape Crisis in Scotland 08 088 010302 and the NSPCC helpline is on 0808 800 5000 there are also a few more mentioned in the pinned post on our instagram which is at why didn't you pod please do follow us on instagram and consider subscribing to and sharing this podcast if you would like to tell us your story or find out a little bit more about what that would entail just email why didn't you pod at gmail.com I'm the only person who has access to that inbox. So your privacy is guaranteed, but also your story will always be told in a way that protects you and in a way of your choosing. All that's left to say is thank you for listening again. That was Amber's story. And we're going to see you next week, I hope, for another. For another.